Welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Donald A. Beleza, JD MBA with us today. Mr. Beleza has served as Chief Executive Officer and Legal Counsel of the American Association of Medical Assistants since 1990. He served previously as staff attorney for the American Dental Assistance Association. Mr. Belezas received his baccalaureate and law degrees from Northwestern University and his MBA in economics from the University of Chicago. He earned his certified association executive designation from the American Society of Association Executives in 1985. Mr. Beleza led the CMA of AAMA certification program to accreditation by the National Commission for Certifying Agencies in 2006 and to reaccreditation in 2011 and 2016. He also led the certifying board of the AAMA to its CMA certification program to accreditation by the International Accreditation Service under the International Organization for Standardization Standards 17024 in 2016. Mr. Beleza served on the National Commission for Certifying Agencies from 2007 to 2013 and as chair from 2010 to 2013. During his three years of service as NCCA chair, Don served on the ICE Board of Directors. He served on the ICE Government Affairs Chair and has chaired the committee as well. In 2013 and 14, Mr. Beleza served as chair of the Task Force on Administrative Standards as part of the revision of the NCCH standards. At the 2013 Annual Exchange, ICE awarded a presidential commendation to Mr. Beleza in recognition of his exemplary service to the Institute for Credentialing Excellence and his leadership and in appreciation of his steadfast dedication. The Institute has published two of Mr. Beleza's white papers, Interfaces Between Professional Certification and Academic Accreditation, A Non-Technical Legal Perspective, 2008, and five of the most frequent problem areas with NCCA applications with James Feidler, PhD, 2016. Mr. Beleza has served on the American Society of uh, American Society of Association Executives Legal Section Council. His article "Keep Committees in Check to Curb Legal Exposure" was published in of Association Now, a publication of ASAE. Mr. Beleza has given presentations on association law, the Supreme Court's decision in the New Haven Firefighters' Reverse Discrimination Case, the American with Disabilities Act and the accommodations requirements for test takers with disabilities, the 2016 NCCA standards, and the most frequent problem areas with NCCA applications. He has given these and other presentations for two Chicago Annual Law Symposia of the American Society of Association Executives, the Institute for Credentialing Excellence, 
and the Association for Test Publishers, the Chicago Bar Association, Federation of Associations of Regulatory Boards, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and the Health Professions Network. Mr. Beleza has taught evening courses in constitutional law, comparative government, international human rights, and association management at DePaul University Graduate School of Business and Trinity International University. A copy of the handout, an article written by, by Mr. Beleza, is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box of your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right hand side of your screen. So Don, a warm welcome. Thank you, Catherine, and I am pleased to be able to give this presentation to all of the listeners. The American Association of Medical Assistants is a membership organization located in Chicago. We also offer the CMA, AAMA certification, continuing education units, and we also, <clears throat> excuse me, participate in the accreditation of medical assisting programs, which is done by the Commission on Accreditation of Allied Health Education Programs. I monitor proposed legislation and regulations on both the federal and the state level. So let's begin. First of all, what is CCM and TCM? These are Medicare programs, and CCM stands for Chronic Care Management, and Transitional Care Management is TCM. These are relatively new programs. CCM began in 2015, and TCM was started in 2013. The purpose of these programs was to provide reimbursement for services that are not included within standard Medicare coverage. Keep in mind that these programs are only available for individuals who are covered by fee-for-service Medicare, also known as original Medicare. Let's look first at the eligibility for CCM, which Medicare recipients can receive benefits under this program. According to the law, Medicare recipients who have two or more chronic conditions expected to last at least 12 months or until the patient's death that place the patient at significant risk of death, acute exacerbation or decompensation or functional decline are eligible for CCM benefits. This is important to know because there are some individuals who might meet these qualifications. However, if they are not part of the original Medicare program, then they would not be eligible for chronic care management services. Let's look at the eligibility for transitional care management. Medicare recipients who are being discharged from an inpatient setting and are returning home or to an assisted living or similar facility 
are eligible for TCM benefits. The beneficiary has medical and or psychological problems that require moderate or high complexity medical decision making. That is a second condition, a requirement for a Medicare recipient to be eligible for TCM services. The TCM is a 30-day program. It begins on the day that the patient is discharged from an inpatient setting and it runs for the next 29 days. One of the requirements of the program is that the healthcare provider who offers TCM services must take responsibility for the patient's care, and that's all aspects of care. This really is beneficial for the patient because rather than having several different providers and institutions and services competing with each other potentially, there is one healthcare provider that is responsible for knowing what the patient is receiving and making sure that there are no contradictions or services that are working against each other. Let's look now at the limitations. For both TCM and CCM, there is only one provider that is allowed to bill for CCM or TCM services in a calendar month. I want to mention, too, that during this session, I'm just going to be focusing on individual providers, not institutional providers, but keep in mind that institutional providers are also permitted to provide services under both CCM and TCM. But only one provider is allowed to bill for services in a calendar month. It's also not permissible for both CCM and TCM services to be billed during the same month. In other words, the beneficiary, the patient, can only receive services and the provider can be reimbursed from one provider during a particular calendar month. Now, the identity of the provider can change from month to month, but within the month, there is only one provider that can be reimbursed for CCM and TCM services. Let's look now at who eligible providers are under these programs. Once again, I'm going to be focusing just on individual providers, not institutional providers. So eligible providers, according to the law, are physicians and non-physician practitioners. Now, just as a note, the preferred way to refer to uh, these, what used to be known as mid-level providers, is now non-physician practitioners. So let's look at how the CMS guidelines define these categories. First of all, physicians are MDs or DOs, namely allopathic or osteopathic physicians of any specialty. Although it should be mentioned that most commonly a primary care physician will be the individual that is providing CCM or TCM services. However, that is not a strict requirement. A specialist is permitted to provide these services if all the other requirements are met. Then we go into the category of non-physician practitioners. And we have here three categories of advanced practice registered nurses, namely nurse practitioners, physician assistants, 
clinical nurse specialists, and certified nurse midwives. So these individuals, these four non-physician practitioners, in addition to physicians, are permitted to provide services under both CCM and TCM. Let's look now at what services can be provided and reimbursed under chronic care management. First of all, there has to be a comprehensive electronic care plan that is developed and overseen by the provider who is providing these services. This is a significant advantage to patients because it's clearly spelled out what the care plan is and all parties that may have some contact with the patient will know what the plan is. So this minimizes the possibility of any contradictory orders being given by different healthcare providers. Secondly, the provider who is overseeing the CCM services must coordinate and share patient health information within and outside the practice. This again allows all parties that are providing care to the patient to know what other parties are doing and lessens the likelihood that the patient could be harmed because of contradictions in the care that is provided. Another important element of CCM services is that the patient has 24-7 access to care and health information. With patients who are meeting the requirements of CCM, it's necessary that they be able to have very quick access in case an emergency arises or even if questions arise. And finally, the provider who is offering the CCM services to the Medicare beneficiary must make sure that the patient is also receiving preventive care, not just care that is addressing a particular situation. So these are examples of the CCM services that are covered under this Medicare CCM program. I also want to mention that with the prevalence of the electronic health record, it has become much easier for providers to communicate with each other and with patients. And this, I think, really increases the health of our nation. Let's look at the CPT code that covers CCM, and that would be 99490. Here are the requirements in order for the provider to bill this code and to receive reimbursement. First of all, at least 20 minutes of CCM services per month must be provided by the physician or the NPP or clinical staff, and that's an important point, or clinical staff who are functioning under the provider's direction and authority. Now, the key question is, who are clinical staff? I'm going to be focusing on what CMS says about that, but the one point I want you to keep in mind is that clinical staff is not limited in federal law to licensed staff. This is probably the key point of confusion that I've encountered. Clinical staff is not limited to licensed professionals such as RNs and LPNs. Rather, clinical staff is defined in the CMS guidelines, and we're going to be looking at that later. 
I do want to mention at this point, and I'll elaborate further on, that in almost all states, medical assistants are not licensed. Medical assistants, rather, can be certified, which means that they have taken and passed a national certification examination. But medical assistants are usually not licensed, and therefore this issue of who is and is not clinical staff is quite significant. Now, let's next look at the issue of types of supervision. And this is going to be germane in determining what clinical staff is permitted to be delegated under these programs. There are types of supervision that are defined in the federal law and also state law. The first definition of supervision is known as director on-site supervision. And that is defined as a delegating physician or non-physician practitioner being on the premises or in the office suite and immediately available. Both of those conditions are necessary. The provider must be willing and able to respond to any emergencies. So that's why the second part of this, the immediate availability, is also a necessary requirement. The second issue or a second definition of supervision is general supervision. And I'm quoting now from the federal law. The service is not personally performed by the billing practitioner, but performed by clinical staff under his or her overall direction and control, although his or her physical presence is not required. So unlike direct or on-site supervision, under this category of general supervision, the billing practitioner and the one who is delegating services to clinical staff does not need to be on the premises when a clinical staff member is providing services that are permitted to be delegated to that staff member and that are reimbursable under both CCM and TCM. I want to mention, too, that in regard to medical assisting scope of practice, the terminology varies from state to state. So these definitions will be different from state to state to some extent. There are also other categories of supervision for medical assistance. One category that I don't mention here is what can be called over-the-shoulder supervision, which means that the delegating physician or non-physician practitioner is not only on the premises, but is actually in the same room in which the medical assistant is providing a service or performing a task. And as you can imagine, this over-the-shoulder supervision applies to more advanced tasks that are delegated to medical assistants. The overseeing provider must be within eyeshot and earshot in order to be able to intervene and address the situation if necessary. But keep in mind these basic definitions of direct and general supervision. Now let's move to the key question, who are clinical staff under CCM? If clinical staff are permitted to undertake certain tasks as delegated by a provider, we have to know who meets this definition. I'm quoting again, from federal documents. The CCM code describes time spent per calendar month by clinical staff who qualifies as clinical staff. 
So here's the authoritative response from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Practitioners should consult the CPT definition of the term clinical staff. Time spent by clinical staff may only be counted if Medicare's Incident 2 rules are met. So let's unpack this response from CMS. First of all, we have to look at the CPT definition in order to determine who is and is not clinical staff. We'll be talking about that shortly. But secondly, in order for time spent by clinical staff to count as CCM services, the Incident 2 rules must be met. I'm also going to address that shortly. But keep in mind that these are the two issues that we must look at very carefully in determining who is clinical staff according to the CCM and TCM guidelines. Now let's move from chronic care management to transitional care management. And there are separate CPT codes that apply to TCM. And those are 99495 and 99496. The first code is defined as TCM services with moderate medical decision complexity. And a face-to-face -face visit is required within 14 days of discharge. Remember again that TCM is a 30-day program. Day one is when the patient is released from an inpatient facility to an intermediary care, intermediate care facility, and the next 29 days are the period for TCM services. The next code, 99496, applies to TCM services with high medical decision complexity, and the face-to-face -face visit is required within seven days of discharge, which makes sense because of the uh, need for high medical decision-making and complexity in that situation. So those are the two CPT codes for TCM. Let's look now at TCM services provided by clinical staff under general supervision. Remember again, there must be either a physician or a non-physician practitioner who is overseeing all delivery of care, but that individual is permitted to delegate certain tasks to clinical staff under general supervision. So again, in this case, we're going to be looking at tasks that can be done without the overseeing provider being on the premises. First of all, under general supervision, a clinical staff member can communicate with agencies and community services that the beneficiary uses. Once again, the role of the provider and the provider staff are crucial to make sure that all agencies, services, other providers are working off that same electronic care plan and there are no agencies or providers that are working against each other. Secondly, under general supervision, a clinical staff member is permitted to provide education to the beneficiary, family, guardian, and or caretaker to support self-management, independent living, and activities of daily living. These patients oftentimes will have a 24-7 caretaker either in their home or some other location, and it is quite important 
that the clinical staff be able to communicate with these caretakers and provide information that the provider thinks is necessary at the moment. And again, this is not just limited to the patient or the beneficiary, but also family members, guardians, and caretakers can also be given information from the provider that is conveyed by clinical staff of the provider. Finally, services that are provided by clinical staff may include assisting the beneficiary and or family in accessing needed care and services. Sometimes the beneficiary and family really don't have the time to figure out all the details of which agencies provide what services, but this is something that clinical staff may be assigned by the practitioner. Now, getting back to the main theme of our presentation concerning medical assistance and what they can be delegated under CCM and TCM, it is my legal opinion that all of the above, all of these three bullet point services may be delegated to and done by knowledgeable and competent medical assistants working under, in this case, the provider's general supervision, not direct or on-site supervision. Let's look further now at who are clinical staff under TCM. We looked at who are clinical staff under CCM. Let's see how the two definitions match. And again, I'm quoting now. The CPT book describes services by the physician staff as and or licensed clinical staff under his or her direction. Does this mean that RNs and LPNs or may medical assistants also provide some parts of TCM services? These are the types of questions that I receive frequently. Now let's look at the response, the authoritative response from CMS. Medicare encourages practitioners to follow CPT guidance in reporting TCM services. Once again, see the CPT definition of the term clinical staff. So as we saw under the definition of clinical staff for CCM, we also see here that CMS is telling the practitioner to check to see what the definition is in the CPT manual in order to determine which of the employees, which of the personnel fall into this category of clinical staff. Well, finally, let's look directly at that issue of the CPT definition of clinical staff. So this is what CMS is telling providers to look to in determining who is clinical staff under both CCM and TCM. Once again, I'm quoting, a person who works under the supervision of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional and who is allowed by law, regulation, and facility policy to perform or assist in the performance of a specified professional service, but who does not individually report that professional service. That is the definition of who is clinical staff according to CPT, and because CCM and TCM were directed to this definition. This gives us an answer to who clinical staff are under both the CCM and TCM programs. Now, a key point, there is no limitation in this definition, as you can see, to licensed clinical staff. This is why I take the position 
that this definition is broad enough to include unlicensed allied health professionals such as medical assistants. There's no limitation to only licensed staff such as RNs or LPNs. Let me talk a little bit about this line that says not individually reporting professional services. Medical assistants as well as RNs and LPNs are not providers and therefore they do not have a national provider identifier number. Some of you may be familiar with the NPI system and that providers such as the physicians that we've been discussing as well as physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and other advanced practice registered nurses will have NPI numbers so that they will be able to report directly to CMS in order to obtain reimbursement. But staff who are not providers, such as RNs, LPNs, and medical assistants, do not have NPI numbers and do not individually report professional services. Rather, their services are billed as incident to the services of the delegating licensed provider. Let's look now at incident two. What does that mean? And what are the requirements for CCM and TCM? Once again, I'm quoting, the practitioner must meet the incident two requirements described in chapter 15, section 60 of the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual. Now let's look at that section, Incident to Physicians Professional Services. This is how the policy manual of Medicare defines Incident 2. Auxiliary personnel, which is similar to clinical staff in the definitions that we've looked at, means any individual who is acting under the supervision of a physician, regardless of whether the individual is an employee, leased employee, or independent contractor of the physician or of the legal entity that employs the physician. This is important because sometimes I receive questions as to whether a clinical staffer, such as a medical assistant, meets this definition of an auxiliary professional who's working incident to that of a physician or a non-physician practitioner if the employer of the medical assistant is not actually the provider himself or herself, but rather is an employer of the clinic or of a hospital or of some other entity. Note that this says it does not matter who technically is the employer of the auxiliary personnel. What really matters is that the individual is working under the supervision of a physician. That would be the requirement for incident two services. Let's look further at this definition of the incident two requirements. So CMS says, thus where a physician supervises auxiliary personnel to assist him or her in rendering services to patients, and includes the charges for their services in his or her own bills, the services of such personnel are considered incident to the physician's service if, so here's the key point, if there is a physician's service rendered to which the services of such personnel are an incidental part. So the tasks that are being done by these auxiliary personnel, clinical staff, 
Again, very often medical assistants or RNs or LPNs. The service or the task that they are providing must be connected in some way with the service that the delegating provider is providing. So that is the definition of incident two according to CMS. At this point, I'd like to move over to some definitions of medical assistants. Just exactly who are medical assistants and what is their scope of practice? What are they permitted to be delegated under state and federal law? A basic definition, medical assistants are unlicensed. That's the first key point. Remember, I spoke about the difference between licensing and certification, licensing being a mandatory credential and certification being a voluntary credential. Medical assistants are unlicensed in that very few states require medical assistants to have a license in order to work. They are allied health professionals who work under direct or on-site provider supervision. And remember our definition of direct or on-site supervision the delegating provider must be on the premises or in the office suite and immediately available as necessary. And the authority of that provider in outpatient settings, that's an important point because medical assistants do not work in inpatient settings as medical assistants per se. So medical assistants work in outpatient ambulatory settings under direct provider supervision and perform both clinical and administrative tasks. That's an important part of medical assisting education and training in that they are able to do both back office clinical tasks as well as front office administrative tasks. Direct on-site supervision is defined once again as the delegating provider being on the premises or in the office suite and immediately available. This is a good working definition of who are medical assistants. Let's look a little bit more specifically at what tasks are delegable to medical assistants and what tasks they typically perform. In addition to administrative and managerial tasks, medical assistants are delegated by their provider clinical tasks such as, and these are some very prominent examples throughout the United States such as measuring vital signs, performing electrocardiography or EKGs, performing venipuncture or phlebotomy, and administering medication orally, and administering intramuscular, intradermal, and subcutaneous injections, including vaccinations and immunizations. Now these clinical tasks, once again, are done under direct on-site provider supervision. It's my opinion that some of these tasks that are very basic and do not pose any threat to a patient, such as measuring vital signs or collecting non-invasive specimens, such as urine and sputum, would not require the on-site presence of the delegating provider because of the non-potentially patient-jeopardizing nature of those tasks. But these other tasks, any venipuncture or any administration of medication, and especially any 
administration of injections in these three categories, the IM, ID, and sub-Q injections, must be done only when the delegating provider is on the premises and immediately available. There are some variations in state laws. So in some states, medical assistants are not permitted to be delegated all of these tasks. Nevertheless, this list is a good example of the scope of practice for medical assistance in most states. Another comment that I have at this point, it is often a good idea for the delegating provider to verify the dosage and identity of an injectable substance before it is administered by the medical assistant because of any substantial likelihood of harm to a patient if the injectable substance is a controlled substance or of a nature that there could be harm done to the patient if the wrong injectable substance is drawn up or prepared and administered. I do recommend as a best practice that the delegating provider or another licensed professional verify the dosage and identity of the injectable substance before it is injected by the medical assistant. In terms of state law, uh, you are free to email me at any time. I'll be providing my email address again at the end of this presentation, and I'll be happy to <clears throat> excuse me, answer any of your questions about state uh, scope of practice for medical assistance. Let's look at some points of clarification. The scope of practice for medical assistance, which really is the same as the scope of delegation of the provider, is determined mostly by state law. Laws vary somewhat from state to state. I indicate mostly by state law because there are, there are some federal laws that will impact the scope of practice of medical assistance, and I'll address those shortly. Also, I want to mention that on the website of the American Association of Medical Assistants, I have placed the state laws, the state scope of practice laws for medical assistance for all American jurisdictions. So if you do have a question as to whether a particular task is or is not delegable to a medical assistant in your state, it's good to start at that point. Now, what are some exceptions to the statement that the scope of practice is determined by state law? I do need to mention at this point <clears throat> that there was a act passed by Congress that would require in order for providers to receive reimbursement under a special program for medical assistants who were entering orders into the computerized provider order entry system at the direction of the provider, that they have to be credentialed in order for the provider to meet the requirements of these federal programs. And there are two federal programs. One is the Medicare Electronic Health Record Incentive Program, and the second is the Medicaid Electronic Health Record Incentive Program. According to the meaningful use provisions of those programs, the only individuals who are permitted to enter orders 
into the computerized provider order entry system and have that entry counted as meeting the requirement of the federal law were either licensed healthcare professionals, once again, that could be anyone from a physician to a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant or an RN or an LPN, or credentialed medical assistants. Those are the only two categories that are recognized in CMS regulations as meeting the requirements of meaningful use, which is defined as a certain percentage of orders in three categories. Category one, medication or prescription orders. Category two, laboratory orders. And category three, diagnostic imaging orders. A certain percentage in each of those three categories must be entered by either licensed healthcare professionals or credentialed medical assistants in order for the provider to meet the requirement and to receive an incentive, pro, pro, uh, incentive payment from CMS in addition to the standard reimbursement that is received under Medicare or Medicaid. I do need to mention that legislation enacted by Congress has phased out the Medicare program. However, it has been rolled over into other programs and the Medicaid incentive program is still in effect through 2021. So it's important to realize that this is one area in which federal law has established requirements in addition to state law concerning the medical assisting scope or practice. Next point, once again, medical assistants do not work clinically in inpatient settings as medical assistants per se such as in assisted living facilities, hospitals, hospices, correctional institutions, any inpatient setting, medical assistants do not work clinically. They can work administratively, but they cannot work clinically unless they meet the requirements and become certified nursing assistants or medication aides. But medical assistants, as medical assistants per se, do not work in these inpatient settings. Let's look a little bit about the credentialing for medical assistants. Once again, we're talking about certifications, which are voluntary national credentials, not mandatory state credentials, because mandatory state credentials would fall into the category of licenses. So we're looking at certification, voluntary national credentials. The CMA AAMA credential is awarded by the American Association of Medical Assistants by its certifying board. And just to point out some distinctives of the CMA AAMA credential, it is the only medical assistant credential that is accredited by both the National Commission for Certifying Agencies and is accredited under international standard ISO 17024. Now these two bodies, the NCCA and ISO, are bodies that accredit certifying bodies. In other words, for a certification program to show that it is meeting 
the most current psychometric standards and is also complying with all legal requirements, a certifying body, such as the certifying board of the AAMA, may submit a requirement or a proposal to these two agencies indicating that it meets all of the standards of a high-quality certification program. So the CMA AAMA credential is the only medical assistant credential that is accredited by both of these bodies. Let's look a little bit more about the CMA AAMA credential. Another distinctive, I should mention too, that there are probably eight or nine medical assistant credentials in the United States other than the CMA AAMA. So it's important to understand what the requirements are of each of these credentials, the eligibility pathways, and what is tested on these various medical assisting examinations. The CMA AAMA is the only medical assisting credential that requires graduation from a post-secondary medical assisting program accredited by one of the two programmatic accrediting bodies recognized by the United States Department of Education or the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. I should point out that other medical assisting credentials do not require graduation from a medical assisting program. They will allow other eligibility pathways, such as a certain number of years of work experience or a combination of work experience and completion of a non-programmatically accredited medical assisting program. But the CMA AAMA requires graduation from an accredited medical assisting program in addition to passing this examination. The uh, Council for Higher Education Accreditation is a private sector body that recognizes accreditors of programs in schools and the United States Department of Education, of course, is a body that recognizes agencies that accredit educational institutions throughout the United States. Let's look again at another point of distinction of the CMA AAMA credential. It is the only medical assisting credential that retains the National Board of Medical Examiners for the following psychometric services for test construction, delivery scoring, and analysis. The NBME also is the provider of psychometric services for the United States Medical Licensing Examination. That is the test that all medical school graduates must pass in order to, be, to become licensed as a physician in any state. And there are several physician specialty examinations that also use the National Board of Medical Examiners to develop and administer and analyze their examination. Because of the high level of testing and measurement services provided by NBME, we take the position that the CMA AAMA is a very psychometrically sound and legally defensible credential for medical assistance.
Let's get back to the issue of scope of practice limitations. And it's important to know what the limitations are because as we talk about providers delegating certain tasks to clinical staff, such as medical assistants, we have to understand what tasks would be non-delegable by providers to medical assistants as being beyond their scope of practice. Medical assistants may not be delegated tasks that constitute the practice of medicine or require the knowledge and skill of a physician or a non-physician practitioner. Also, medical assistants may not be delegated any tasks that are restricted in state law to other health professionals. Some examples of that might be acupuncture. Most states have a licensing system for acupuncture in that they require acupuncturists to have certain education and to pass an examination in order to be licensed and in order to practice acupuncture. Another example is physical therapy. Physical therapists are licensed in all states. So the point here is that a provider would not be permitted under the law to delegate to a medical assistant a task that is restricted in the law to other professionals. That would be a violation of the Medical Practice Act if it is a physician who is delegating and could also put the medical assistant in jeopardy of being accused of practicing the profession, whether it be physical therapy, nursing, ac acupuncture, whatever, without a license. And finally, medical assistants may not be delegated tasks that require the exercise of independent professional judgment or the making of clinical assessments, evaluations, or interpretations. This final point is a general legal principle that can be used to determine what tasks are and are not within the scope of practice for medical assistance. As you'll see on our website, if you want to know the scope of practice laws in the states, many states do not specifically list out tasks that can or cannot be delegated to medical assistants. Therefore, we sometimes have to rely on general legal principles such as this one in regard to independent professional judgment or the making of clinical assessments. Now let's look at CCM and TCM tasks delegable to medical assistants. So we're coming full cycle back to what providers may and may not delegate to clinical staff or auxiliary personnel, which would include medical assistants. My legal opinion is that medical assistants may be delegated tasks incident to the services of a physician or a non-physician practitioner that do not require the making of clinical assessments or evaluations. That is beyond the scope of medical assistants to be expected to make independent clinical assessments or evaluations. These tasks that are delegable to medical assistants would include the verbatim conveying of information from and receiving of information for the delegating provider. These tasks also include certain types of patient education. So my position is that the conveying of information or receiving of information verbatim can be delegated 
by a provider to a knowledgeable and competent medical assistant, and also some of those patient education tasks that we talked about before under both CCM and TCM, I believe can be delegated to competent medical assistants. Sometimes there's a question of what is and is not patient education. I come back to the legal principle that I enunciated in the previous slide, namely that medical assistance in doing patient education or any tasks must not be required to exercise independent professional judgment or to make any sort of clinical assessment or evaluation. So patient education that is just conveying information that has been approved by the provider is delegable to medical assistants. If the medical assistant, however, is asked a question that requires the exercise of judgment or the making of clinical evaluations, the medical assistant at that point should indicate that those questions would have to be answered by the overseeing provider or some other licensed healthcare professional in the practice. As we're wrapping up here, I do want to mention again that if you want to see the state scope of practice laws, go to our website, which is listed here, and click below state scope of practice laws on the left side of the home page near the bottom, and you'll see a listing of states, and you'll be able to find the relevant laws for medical assisting scope of practice and provider delegation to medical assistants on this page. In some cases, the laws will be fairly straightforward. In some cases, they may be a bit ambiguous. So in that case, I am happy to answer any questions about medical assisting scope of practice under state or federal law. And my email address is listed here, my first initial and last name, dbolesa at aama-ntl.org. So feel free to email any questions about scope of practice. I also want to mention that articles that I've written on public policy issues are also available on our website at aama-ntl.org. On the top ribbon, you will see an entry for CMA Today articles. If you click on that, you'll receive a drop-down menu, and one of the options is public affairs articles. If you click on that, you will see all the articles I have written for our bi-monthly journal, since 2005 on a whole array of issues, including the one I've been talking about today on what can and cannot be delegated to medical assistance under the Medicare CCM and TCM programs. I think at this point I will stop, and if there are any questions that you may have, uh, Catherine, feel free to pose them to me at this point in time. Well, thank you so much, Don. Um, this was a really great presentation, and I do have a few uh, questions. Um, so the first one I had was you mentioned that certain CCM and TCM tasks may be delegated to clinical staff. So may these tasks also be delegated to non-clinical staff? That's a very good question. And actually, in the CMS documents, there's a specific statement 
that non-clinical tasks or non-clinical staff may not be delegated these various tasks that I've discussed throughout these this presentation. So you may ask, who are non-clinical staff? That would include individuals such as receptionists, uh, billing and coding personnel, any front office staff that really uh, are not necessarily familiar with some of the clinical issues. So CMS is very specific to say that non-clinical staff may not be assigned these tasks under CCM and TCM that I've been talking about. Okay, great. Um, and then I have another another question here. Um, what type of patient education are licensed providers permitted to delegate to medical assistants? Yes. Now, to elaborate on what I mentioned near the end of the talk, the type of patient education has to be material that is reviewed and approved by the provider. It may vary from patient to patient. That's why a provider may say that this patient uh, should be informed of the following two paragraphs, but another patient under CCM or TCM uh, should be read the whole document, which may be a few paragraphs. But I would come back to the principle that medical assistants must never attempt to answer questions that involve judgment. So if a patient uh, if a medical assistant were providing some education and the patient were asked a question uh, such as, well, how serious is the situation or my diagnosis, where do I fit into this? That is something that requires clinical assessment and the medical assistant at that point would have to say that's a matter for the provider or for another licensed professional. So again, making any types of value judgments, or uh, which is uh, easy to do because you want to give the patient good news, but a medical assistant just has to stick to what has been authorized by the delegating provider to convey uh, to the patient or the patient representative. Right, right. Okay, and uh, I do have another question here. Um, is, is the scope of medical assisting practice limited by the accreditation standards of the Joint Commission? So I was under the impression that state and federal law establish the medical assisting scope of practice, not Joint Commission standards. Yes, you are correct, Catherine. And actually, this has become quite a problem uh, in recent months, not necessarily from Joint Commission personnel who are doing on-site surveys, but rather from consultants who are retained by health systems, whether they be hospitals or ambulatory settings. And uh, these consultants are asked to do a mock, a joint commission visit to prepare the institution for the real visit. But it's very clear in the joint commission manuals, they have a hospital manual as well as an ambulatory manual. It's very clear in those documents that joint commission standards do not override in any sense or supersede in any sense the requirements of state and federal law in regard to what providers may delegate and to whom. So again, uh, if there is a consultant 
or even a joint commission surveyor that may tell you that, well, I'm sorry you can't delegate injections to medical assistants because uh, that doesn't seem to be best practice. You should respond by saying that state law determines what providers can delegate and to whom, and the joint commission has no jurisdiction to determine what, in its opinion, is and is not delegable by providers to medical assistants. Great. Well, thank you. That is that is so informative. I really appreciate that. And uh, we don't have any more questions at the moment. I know if our attendees have, have other um, questions, uh, we can take those um, offline and um, either the attendees, um, if they can send those questions uh, directly to your email, which is the, they have the contact information um, right there, um, or uh, attendees, you can send your questions um, to us as well, and we can forward them on um, to Don. And so, um, do you have any other uh, final final thoughts for us or advice? Uh, just that uh, this is a little bit tricky because the medical assisting profession is relatively new compared to other professions. And as a matter of fact, the CCM and TCM programs are a bit new, as I said right at the beginning. So don't hesitate to contact me, and I will do the best I can to try to sort these issues out. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, attendees, please remember to go ahead and, and use that contact information. Um, and also remember uh, that your um, uh, concerning your CEU certificates, um, please remember um, PACOM and PMI certificate will be emailed directly to you uh, within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. Uh, you can also um, register for any future webinars. You can request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com. You can call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.